welcome everyone to our morning service here at Liberty Church. At the moment we have two services, one that meets here in the morning, one that meets at the Zolder von Limikoff in the afternoon at 5.30 every Sunday, which you're very welcome to join us with uh, there as well. Uh, and we announced last week that in March we are launching a third service. Um, so we'll have two morning services here. Um, and rather than meet at half ten, we'll have one that meets at half past nine and one that meets at 11 o'clock. Um, and to make that happen, we really need uh, you guys to get involved in that with us. Uh, so uh, if you are already serving in the life of the church, then thank you. We really appreciate that. Uh, if you are not serving on a Sunday on one of our teams, uh, and if you would say that Liberty Church was your home and you regularly come here, then we'd love for you to get involved. Um, you can ask one of our team with an Ask Me badge about how you can do that. There's some forms at the back you can fill in. Um, and there's lots of different jobs that you can do, and none of them require any professional qualifications, as far as I know. But you are very welcome. We'd love for you to get involved with us. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you'd like to turn to the book of Daniel, uh, if you don't have one with you, don't worry, the words will appear magically on the screen behind me in a moment or two. Uh, and the book of Daniel tells this quite dramatic story uh, of how the people of God were, or the background to the story anyway, is the people of God were taken into exile out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, uh, by the Babylonians who invaded and caused lots of devastation and destruction in Jerusalem, but took some of the people as a, a remnant uh, into exile in Babylon, including Daniel and some of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and today we're going to look at perhaps the most famous chapter, the most famous story in this book, uh, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are thrown into a fiery furnace. Perhaps you might have heard of that story. If you haven't, don't worry. Uh, and in Daniel 2, last week, we were talking about how King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this huge uh, man, this massive image he sees, which is then this tiny, small rock, obliterates it, and how the dream was about how all the kingdoms of the world will ultimately all fall, and only the kingdom of God will remain. But this week in Daniel chapter 3, rather than just the king, Nebuchadnezzar, have this dream what happens in Daniel chapter 3 is he actually builds himself this massive idol, this huge statue that he puts up uh, on the outskirts of the city and he tells the people that they need to come and all worship and bow down to this statue and they're going to play this music, have this big ceremony and everyone is to fall fat on their face and worship this idol that he's built. 
And if they don't, then they will face punishment. They'll be thrown into the fire. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 15. So we're going to... Let me go over. I'm going to go this way this week. There we go. Let's read this. It says, now... This is, so this is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He says, now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trig... I don't know what... Does anyone know what a trigon is? Trigon. No. Nor do I. Harp, bagpipe. Who knew they had bagpipes in Babylon? Amazing. And every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of astonishing miracles that we can't even comprehend. Miracles that may even seem unbelievable to us. But we know at the very foundation of our faith is the greatest miracle of all your resurrection, that you died and rose again. 
in that from that wonderful truth, we have life and life to the full. And we pray today as we look at these words together that you would speak that life again into our hearts. That you would breathe into us hope, love, and all of your goodness. God, we want to know you. That's our desire. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would make yourself known to our hearts as we look at this word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the year 1889, in Paris, there was a grand exposition. This was at the end of, um, or just after the great enlightenment, where the French threw off any of their religious cultural oppression and said, we don't need any of that anymore. And to celebrate their new freedom, they, they, they had this great exhibition across the city of Paris, uh, and they built the Eiffel Tower. That was the moment uh, to proclaim their new sense of freedom and identity as a nation. And it was so successful that 11 years later, the year 1900, they held their second great festival, and they gathered or well, they invited the whole nation to come to Paris to celebrate the Enlightenment. Uh, and this time they built a different statue. They built a 20-foot high statue of a woman called La Parisine. And she symbolized the new modern age that they were living in. She symbolized the dream of personal freedom, that we don't need any gods, we don't need any religion, that all that we need we have in ourself. And statues, just like the Eiffel Tower, just like this 20-foot high woman, statues are often representations of something, they represent something, they're to convey meaning to us, you know, a memorial for a great war that's been fought. We put a statue there to help us to remember. And statues, there are even a few in our, in our city. There's one of the philosopher Spinoza, which you can see next to the, the Royal Ballet. It says on it, Hedul von der Stadt is de Freiheit. The purpose of the state is freedom. Spinoza delivered his message of freedom. He was, he was kind of a mystical atheist. He believed that you found transcendence in animals and nature. And that we didn't need religion anymore. Freedom was something we found from the world around us. We found from within ourselves. Perhaps the most, it's not quite a statue, but the most famous symbol of recent times in our city is the I Amsterdam sign when you first come out of the airport and you want to catch a taxi, it's there in front of you. It used to be by the Rijksmuseum. There's a portable one that moves around the city. And if anything, it's designed to kind of capture the spirit of the age that we live in, that we come to Amsterdam, that tourists come 
20 million tourists every year flood our city, that many of us are here to fulfill our personal dream, to discover our true self, to not worry about all the oppressive forces around us, what anyone else is telling us to do, but to discover true meaning, true purpose within ourselves, from within us. That even our city of Amsterdam is just another tool for our personal happiness. That these statues, these images, represent the god of, the idol of self before anything else. And if we think of statues as a representation, then in a way, God has sent his own statue, his own representation into the world, and that's us. It talks in Genesis 1, verse 26, 27, about how God made man in his image and he made humanity to send into the world as his representation, his image, his statue to convey the meaning of worshipping him, that our identity, our fulfillment is in him, that human flourishing is all tied up in who God is. And human flourishing isn't tied up in who we are, in our own sense of self and importance. And what Nebuchadnezzar does here, just like these other statues that I've mentioned, he builds a statue in opposition to the image of God. It says, what you need to worship is this golden image. And they play all this music, they have this ceremony, this big celebration, because they're celebrating their own vision of what it is to be human, what it is to find human flourishing, what it is for their people, the Babylonians, to have success and victory and fame and power is to worship this golden image. And we're not told to bow down to any images the same way that Nebuchadnezzar tells his people to. It's not like at school, you know, you do your math class and then your history class and then we have the bowing down to the image time. We don't tend to do that in our culture. We're not told that if we don't bow down to certain idols that will be thrown into a fiery furnace. But yet, it's important we understand that all the idolatrous things, all the gods in our city, they want the same thing as what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. Absolute worship. That's what the God of self, these statues, these images represent. They want your devotion. They want you to try and find your meaning and your purpose and your identity in yourself. And this idol will begin to take over your life. And it will offer you small trinkets, small promises, small moments of personal joy and delight and happiness. 
but little by little it will begin to take over your life. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they knew was that they knew what God had told the people of Israel in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol and worship it. The first two commandments, they knew that. So they knew if they were to be faithful to their God, they couldn't worship this idol. And you might think, oh, guys, just go into the desert, bow down, and then get on with your day. You know, don't worry about it. But they stood in defiance. They were disobedient to what the king said. They weren't tempted to compromise to these, this great God. And so often we're tempted to compromise to the gods, the idols of our age, and we think, oh, it doesn't matter, it's a little thing. But these things, they want dominion of your heart. They want to take over. And this series that we've been going through on Daniel, it's, it's about resilience. We've been talking about that a few times, that the church, the people of God, when you're faced with a cultural storm, when you're faced with a city, a nation, a culture that has a different way of thinking that sometimes feels, perhaps often feels opposed to what we believe, that there are three options. We, we retreat, we run away, and we build a big hut in the middle of nowhere, and we all wear the same clothes and eat yams all day long. Or relevance, in that we just say, we're just going to be exactly the same as everyone else. We won't say anything offensive Anything we believe the Bible says that's going to upset people, just ignore those bits, forget that's there. Or we're resilient. We believe that God's called us here to Amsterdam to be a blessing to this city. To love and serve this city and the people that live here. But at the same time, not to compromise, to hold on to what we believe is true, to hold on to what we believe is the real vision that God's given us for human flourishing and growth. And what resilience sometimes requires is a faithful disobedience and a faithful disobedience in the face of the power of conformity. That there's a great power in conformity. There's a great power in everyone just thinking the same. And more and more in the days we, we live in, you get this herd mentality. That everyone has to believe the same thing. There's this ideology that comes into the world and you, you, you have to sign up to it. You have to hold on to it. You can't oppose it. You can't stand against it. There's a, almost like a madness of the crowds around us. And there are certain values in our city that you can't question, that you can't disagree with without being shouted down. We live in a, in a tolerant age 
which is very intolerant to anything that stands in objection to it. We live in a tolerant age as long as you don't offend the great idol of self. That's what our age believes, that every single one of us should be able to be whoever we want to be. And that personal happiness, personal freedom is found in here. And anything that, that questions that is because we're questioning a sacred value, it can't be heard, it can't be listened to, it can't be held on to. And that means that sometimes even some of the things that the world around us believe are actually sometimes even seem absurd, scientifically unprovable, bizarre. But yet it's very difficult to, to put a voice against those things because they've become sacred. They've become so important that we can't challenge them. Let me give you an example. Even just this week uh, in the UK, the, the Church of England, they put out a, some guidelines for their vicars, for their pastors, about sex and about holding on to what the church has believed for thousands of years, that sex is God's designed, but to be enjoyed within heterosexual marriage. That's what they, they said. And they weren't saying anything new, not anything radical. They were just saying, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the church has believed for thousands of years. And they walked into this cultural storm <laughs> where everybody went, absolutely crazy. How dare you say that? that? That was the reaction of people, not just in the UK, but all around the world. If you go on social media and you look at the response, just abuse, vitriol, just so much anger and hatred. How dare you say that? Because even just by saying what the Bible teaches, what the church has believed for thousands of years, you are abusing a, a sacred value that our culture holds. The, the, the church can't decide what I do with my body. I get to decide that, no one else. And if you question that, the fire comes. But yet, in the face of that, in the face of so many challenges, our calling is to be faithful not to what the world around us says, not to what will make us popular or to fit in, but to be resilient and faithful to what we believe the word of God says. And if you disagree with things that I say, I'm more than happy to open up the Bible. And we can disagree over scripture, that's, that's fine. If you find other verses that you think argue with what I say, great, let's sit down and talk about it. But for us just to say, all well, the world, everyone else is saying this, so we can't say that. That's, that's not an argument that we can hold on to. We're called to be faithfully disobedient sometimes. And someone asked me a question at the evening service. We give the opportunity for people to, 
to, to message in their questions. And when I finish the sermon, because we've got a bit more time than we do in the mornings, I'll try and take some time and answer some of their questions. And someone asked me last week, how do you know the difference? So in Daniel's life and in Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, there are lots of things that they do seem to compromise on. They were happy, if you look back in chapter one, they were happy for their names to be changed. They were happy to be taught all sorts of belief systems that the Babylonians held on to. But on certain issues, on the food they ate, and on this issue in chapter three of the idol that they worshipped, they remained faithful. And the question was, how do we know the difference between these things? Well, let me try and answer that. First of all, for us to be know when to compromise and when to not compromise, we need to hold on to truth. I don't know if you've heard of the Archimedean point. It's a theory that Archimedes, the great scientist and mathematician, he had this theory that if you gave him a lever long enough, he could move the whole planet. And I don't know the equations he had to back that up because I'm not a mathematician. But that was his theory. If you gave him a lever long enough, you could move the whole world. And his point was that you have to step back and get an objective position on things. That from where we are right now, moving the whole planet seems absurd. And of course, having a lever big enough, I mean, it is a bit absurd. <laughs> but his point was that theoretically you could. And that's what the word of God gives us. It gives us the, the ability to zoom out where all around you, you hear so much noise. Where the world around is trying to indoctrinate you to a certain way of thinking. It's trying to squash you and how you think into a particular mold, into a particular likeness. And what the word of God does is it helps you to stand back and have an objective opinion and be able to think, what's, what's actually true? What's really important? And the other thing we need is to realize that their choice here is a choice of worship, which in the end is a very simple decision to make. What, what am I going to worship in my heart? Am I going to worship man and say, well, I don't, I don't want people to think badly of me. I don't, I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't want people to say things about me behind my back. I, I don't want to pass up that opportunity for promotion because people know that I'm a, a Christian even. And in the end, we're just worshiping another idol because we're putting that before God. In the end, it really does come down to a simple choice of which idol am I gonna worship? 
which God am I going to serve with my life? And I guess for most of us, we're not facing a fiery furnace. <laughs> Although, all around the world, in lots of countries, Christians do face sometimes the penalty of death for what they believe. Even today, in our modern times, every year, hundreds of Christians die for what they believe. And that's probably not going to be a punishment that we might face. But there might be other challenges that, that come our way. People that you might even be in a situation where you think, if I compromise here, I can save my job. But if I hold on to what I believe, I might lose my job. That might be something that you might face in your future in the culture that we live in. Or it might be a much more common one is probably that we know that if we hold on to what we believe, that we'll just become a bit of an outcast. We might even lose some friends, or at least lose the respect of some of our friends. Particularly on the issue of sex. All my friends believe this. How can I believe that? They'll laugh at me. They'll say I'm quaint and old-fashioned. And we're aware that, oh goodness, if I hold on to this view, then I'm going to lose so much. And so often there's, we're faced with this intense pressure to conform on how we spend our money and what we do with our bodies, on how we define our identity. There's such a pressure to think a certain way And it might be that maybe some of you do feel like you are in a bit of a furnace, that there's a situation arisen and you, you can just feel the heat of it. It might not be because of any cultural issue. It might be just a season that you're walking through in your life. It just feels like the temperature's been turned up. And that's causing you to, to doubt and to question, and to think, is God really real? What on earth is happening in this situation? We just feel the heat of it, the pressure. But it's important to see what actually, what actually happens in this furnace. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in, what happens? First of all, something is lost. I don't know if you saw that in the story, but they lose something when they go into the furnace. Because if you see in verse 21, it says that they were, they were bound. 
that Nebuchadnezzar sent his mighty men to, to bind them, to tie them up. And in their cloaks, their tunics, they were bound and then thrown into the fire. But then what happens later on, you see that Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees them walking in the fire. Now, if you've been bound up, you don't walk, you hop, right? <laughs> you ever do the three-legged race at school? Tied someone, you just have to hop along? That's what happens if you're bound up. You don't just walk around. But even though it says that they were still dressed in their cloaks, their tunics, that the bindings on them, that was the only bit that was burnt away, that that was lost. That was what was lost in this fire. Which I think is a, a beautiful promise. If you just think about what God's maybe trying to tell you through that story, is that sometimes it's through the fire that God will use that to set you free. Which seems odd, doesn't it? But it's true. There's an old, old hymn. I don't know who the author was. This is old hymn that goes like this. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So what God does, he's, he's kind of smelting you. <laughs> when you smelt something, you heat something up. You heat up gold to remove the dross, the rubbish, and to bring out the purity. And maybe that's what is even happening in your life at the moment. That God's refining you. And you think, oh, God, you could have just sent me an email. You know, Why does it have to be so painful? But what God's doing is through those, Spurgeon called them happy troubles. Through happy trouble, God draws you to himself. Because it's only in those scenarios of just pain and suffering, when accusation comes, when persecution comes, it causes us to run to God, to run to him. He calls us home to him in those moments. Something is lost, but something is gained. They gain their liberty. <laughs> They're free from these bonds. But they also seem to gain this remarkable peace. I don't know if you've ever seen, or maybe you've been on one of these courses yourself, but I've seen them on TV, where they take a group of business executives away for like a team building exercise, and they make them walk across hot coals. I don't know how that bonds people together, but it's something that happens. But you don't kind of walk peacefully. You most people just run across as quickly as they can because they don't want to burn their feet wisely. 
But yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in this fire, and they're walking. They're not hopping, they're not skipping, they're not jumping, they're not running. They're just walking. Because they're at peace. So the, the, the normal pace of the Christian life is walking. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve got to walk with God. That's the relationship that he's called you into, to walk with him. It symbolizes just a very calm, non-anxious peace. That's, what, that's how we get to live in this city, in this world. We don't, you don't have to be anxious. It's often there's so many things that are thrown at us to make us feel anxious all the time. That's the tone of the news we receive. Do you feel anxious enough about Iran, about climate change, about disease from China? Do you feel scared enough? But you don't need to be anxious because God is with you. Even in the midst of fire, you don't need to feel anxious. That's why they didn't feel anxious, because it wasn't just the three of them there. God was with them. Something is lost, something is gained. More so, this might not make sense as a sentence, but something is not lost. What happens, you see, is in, in verse... 18, I don't know if you saw it when we were reading it, but when Nebuchadnezzar threatens them and tells them what's going to happen, they say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Wonderful words of faith. But then they also go on to say that, but, but if not, That's what true faith looks like. But if not, I'm going to worship God anyway. And that's the prayer that thousands, probably millions of martyrs have said throughout the ages. You can do this to me, but I won't actually lose what's really important. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that in the end, nothing of real importance would be lost. Because it says in, in Mark chapter eight, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? That was Jesus' question to his disciples. What will it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Because as believers in Jesus, we're called to, as it says in Matthew 6, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It says in Matthew 10, 
do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, because that's what, that's what happens to, to two of the idolaters in this story. I don't know if you noticed, but some of these mighty men that Nebuchadnezzar calls him to bind them up, and they bow down to the idol. But then when they get close to the fire, it says even just in the act of throwing Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the fire, they get burnt up and they die. They lost their bodies, they lost their souls. You see, because in a good tip for you if you want to learn how to read the Bible, if you come across a bit of scripture that you don't understand, is to look at what else the Bible says about that verse or that theme or that subject. If you can find something that Jesus said about it, all the better, that will help. And there are two fiery furnaces in the Bible. There's one in the story of Daniel, and then there's one that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. When I realized when I was studying it this week that there were two fiery furnaces in the Bible and I read that one, I thought, yeah, I might, I might just leave that verse out. But I thought, well, Jesus said it, so I think you guys need to hear it as well. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. Perhaps for some of you here today, you might not feel any kind of fiery furnace, any sort of persecution or trouble. But there's a, a moment this morning where the Holy Spirit is talking right to your soul and he's saying, hear this. You're sleepwalking to disaster. You have an opportunity this morning to say, I'm not going to worship those idols anymore. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. Because the wonderful thing is, although that, those verses might scare us, we know what's wonderfully true about Jesus' story is, you know, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, who is the God who will deliver you? But then by the end of the chapter, he sees the God. And Nebuchadnezzar himself has to worship this God when he sees the deliverance that comes. Because the wonderful thing is that, you know, it says in Matthew 13, Jesus said there that it's the, the righteous will 
shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. But what, what makes you righteous, what will save you from that fiery furnace is not how you respond to this message. It's not really about your actions and what you do, but it's that you have a great deliverer who's come to rescue you. That's the wonderful truth of the Bible. That Jesus doesn't, doesn't even come to pull you out of the fire, to save you from the fire, but he's stepped into the fire. That the, this ferocious, fiery wrath and anger that we deserve, he took upon himself. That you could find wonderful freedom and liberty in him. Because, see, it's not, it's not their ability in the fire to in, endure that saves them. <laughs> Although we're, we're called to be resilient, it's not your resilience that will save you. It's not their resilience that saves them. It says that he stoked, he made, Nebuchadnezzar made this fire seven times hotter. I don't know how hot that is, but that sounds hot. There was a story in the news this week of uh, where some archaeologists were exploring some bodies that had been buried in ash from the eruption from Mount Vesuvius, I think it was, in Italy several hundred years ago. And they found in one of these bodies that the heat had been so hot and intense that it turned this man's brain into glass. Amazing. The heat was so intense, <laughs> it turned his brain into glass. I don't know how that happens, but apparently it happened. The, the, the reason why the Bible tells us that the furnace was seven times hotter is because it's telling you that there's no way they could have survived. This wasn't a, a business training day where you walk on hot coals. This is seven times hotter. The men who threw them in, who were standing outside the furnace, they died. The only possible explanation of how they could survive was God. The only possible explanation of how you can be saved, how you can be delivered, is God is what he's done for you in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me finish by just reading these few verses from Romans, and then we will take communion and worship together. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing salvation that's come to us. That all of us have sinned and fallen short. That all of us deserved a fiery death. But in your grace, you've chosen to save us for those who call upon your name. You've set us free. You've enabled us to walk in freedom. You've given us the ability to endure resistance and persecution and pain by your Holy Spirit. And you've given us this great, wonderful hope that we can hold on to. But even if the worst happens, I know my soul is safe with my Savior. We thank you, God, that now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen.